Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in European Studies. I'm your host, Nicholas Walton. In every program, we talk about a new book that looks at some aspect of Europe and hear from the author. In this episode, that book is Blue Water Empire, the British in the Mediterranean since 1800 by Robert Holland. If ever you wondered why Gibraltar was British, why Byron was so keen on Greece, or why Churchill was determined to fight the Second World War in the Mediterranean, read the book or listen on. Here's the interview. Sitting opposite me here is is Robert Holland, who's written this book, Blue Water Empire, about a subject that I didn't know that much about, but it becomes more obvious that I really should have known a lot more about it, because this is, it's a subject that encapsulates so many different things, whether it's the Anglo-French rivalry of the 19th century, the breakup of great empires, and of course, something that that really contributes to the world that we have in front of us today. Uh, And I was wondering, could you start off just by telling us a little bit about yourself and build up to why you actually came to write this book? What what was it that got you to that point? Uh, Well, I mean, I did my, my PhD initially to talk about my academic self on the interval years and nothing to do on the Mediterranean, on the self-governing parts of the British Empire. Later on, I went on to write um, books about the end of empire. So it's a breaking up of empire bit that you mentioned earlier in in, um, introducing me that led me around in the end to the Mediterranean. I did a book on Cyprus on the 1950s, so the rather protracted end of empire in Cyprus. And so it was that which got me much more fully into the broad Mediterranean context. So I'm a colonial historian who rather strayed into the Mediterranean and became rather obsessed with it, initially through a kind of Cypriot and therefore Greek and therefore Turkish point of entry, and then wanted to do a book, for reasons we'll no doubt discuss at more length, uh, on a pan-Mediterranean theme. So there are academic reasons, if you like, but on a pretty personal note, um, the first important trip I ever made in my life was to Malta, way back in 1969, where I had, I think I was 18 and got some money to um, do some travelling before going to university, and um, four of us went to Malta and did a little little, little survey about recent Maltese history and contemporary affairs. So I think it was even the interest in the, in the Mediterranean, and particularly Malta, as a central part of that, uh, situated in the central part of that sea, was something that was with me from quite a long, a long way back. So it's a mixture of personal reasons and, and academic reasons that rather fortuitously have, have come together in, in, in this book. And, and um, much of my academic life, I suppose, and, uh, and research, specifically about the Mediterranean, but also broadly about Britain's place in the world, has fed into this book. Malta, it's strange when you say that that was the first big trip that you did, mm. because Malta as a, as a place and as a central figure... It's there all the time, and it is fascinating. I've never been myself. Yes. Uh, what is it about Malta that you found so interesting? Well, it formed a kind of natural pair of bookends, starting and ending, both ends of the chronology, for the book itself. In other words, the, I, I had the conception early on of a book that we began with the British fleet um, going into Grand Harbour Valletta in 1800 uh, with the French surrender, 
as a point to the uh, point of uh, departure for the story. Of course, there could be other points of departure for the story, but that's an obvious one. And then right at the end of the chronology in March 1979, this image of the British fleet leaving Grand Harbour Valletta. Really, that's the end of the story. Of course, there are continuities, and I have a, a end little chapter about the continuities. Um, and the legacies, of course, are still with us today. But basically, it seemed to me perfectly natural and, and appropriate that the book should begin with the occupation of Malta, and it should end with the military and naval departure from Malta. So in that, in that sense of conceiving of the, of the book, uh, Malta was... Mortal was central to it. Of course, it's actually central to the story in many other ways in terms of the chronologies that lie in between those events, and we may be yes, talking exactly. about those. All the way through to the second all, world. All the way through. So, 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 so Malta, Malta, is, Malta is, is certainly there, very, the, very, very much. Talking about the conception behind the book, there's one quote that, you, uh, you, you, that there is very early on, which uh, I underlined straight away because I knew that it was going to be central to the reason behind the book, and it was this. Um, it was the British presence in the Mediterranean and the stability that it provided which made the reg- region what an eminent historian writing in 1904 encapsulated as the keyboard of Europe. If it was shaken, everything else would shake too. Well, I think this is, this is, I mean, you're right to put your finger on, on that as a key to the book, why I wrote the book, and what, in some ways, what the central message of the book is all about. In other words, the Mediterranean is, a, is an incredibly, of course, disparate, fractured uh, region, as we know even in today's setting. And there are contemporary resonances as well as historical resonances in exactly that sense. But it was a British maritime power, sucked in and away by the French rather accidentally, right at the end of the 18th century as a response to Napoleon's own ambitions. But it was the, the evolution and character of British maritime power and all that surrounded it, including, of course, its economic um, aspects, which gave the, came to give the Mediterranean itself a kind of integrity, a kind of uh, um, unity, which it hadn't had really before. And which, in a curious way, of course, it lost uh, when British power itself receded. It was the nature of British power that that, that gave it a kind of you know unifying um, uh, unifying um, aspect to it. So, in other words, if you if if you did want to look at the history of the Mediterranean over the last couple of centuries, looking at it through the lens of of British naval power is actually quite a sensible way of, of understanding Absolutely. the Mediterranean. Even if you if you then forget about the British, element. if you want to consider the Mediterranean as a region, it's one of the few kind of factors which, in a kind of authentic, legitimate, persuasive way, allows you to discuss a region from Gibraltar. To, you know, to wherever you like, to 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 the to, Levant, to, to the Levant yes. uh, from east to west, from west to east. So that 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 it was that um, that conception lies behind the book. And I mean, you may be about to press me on on, on these other the historiographical points and where it lies in the whole canon of writing about British overseas history. But that also feeds into this aspect because the Mediterranean uh, has got lost. It seems to me very much lost uh, in the writing of British overseas power and British overseas presences, um, not least in a, a kind of imperial, quasi-imperial context because we've become so obsessed, haven't we, with um, uh, India and Africa as kind of totems of British imperialism 
Uh, Jeremy Paxman is about to give a uh, host a series on British television called Empire. We haven't yet seen it, but I can almost <laughs> guarantee it'll be all about India. There'll be many topi hats. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, there'll be tons of Africa. Uh, I very much doubt whether there'd be any Mediterranean. Yeah, there'll it's be got, the white colonies, of course. There'll be the white colonies also will be there. So it's between these different aspects of empire as we understand them and remember them in India, in the folk memory of the British, Africa, Af- India, as you rightly say, the white dominions. The Mediterranean, because of its own special qualities, has got lost. And in that sense, we're forgetting what was actually, in many ways, the most important thing of all, which was touched on by the Euro the quote a moment ago, that if you shake that, the whole damn system shakes, because it was so absolutely vital. And it wasn't only vital, because this is another way it's been reduced in the historiography and the writing. Uh, it wasn't just a route to the east. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just a passageway. It's vital for other, more important reasons um, than that. And you so, mentioned so, that. Sorry. Only the, so that desire, uh, which fitted together with all kinds of things I had written about before, it was that desire to sort of um, you know, put the Mediterranean back into the picture, really, of the, of the, mode, the whole modus operandi of British overseas power, which was, in an intellectual sense, what I, I really wanted to do. I was just going to pick up on, on, on that thought that when you're talking about the Mediterranean, you're not just talking about a route. I mean, Mussolini, you've got a quote from Mussolini in this saying that that for Britain, the Mediterranean is a via, for the Italians, it's it's vita, you know, it's it's life itself, etc. And you also touch upon it when you talk about Egypt, for instance. Egypt, uh, from the 1880s or so onwards, was not just a route to India. It actually was a means of of Britain being able to influence things that really mattered. Uh, You mentioned the Ottoman Empire, etc. And and that's why you believe that the Mediterranean should be coming much more back into the British imperial story. That's absolutely true. And, of course, I mean, I very much like that little Mussolini, um, the Via Orvita uh, formulation of the the for Italy um, um, Vita, for England um, Via. And, of course, what Mussolini was really implying by that, well, it's only via for you, isn't it? Only mm. via for you, so you can give the whole lot up, can't you? <laughs> what does it matter, really? More important to us. And, of course, the answer was that, well, no, actually, it's rather important to us too. Mm-hmm. So not just via in the way that we are describing. And, yes, you mentioned the Ottoman Empire. That's a, That, in many ways, in the kind of Eastern Mediterranean, con- Levantine context, again, a grist to this the mill of this particular argument because why did the British get involved in the region at the end, right at the end of the 18th century? It was because of it was because of Napoleon's invasion of of Egypt and 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 Napoleon's attempt to get a grip on the whole future of the Ottoman Empire at that time. In other words, the very early phases of of um, what later became, of course, in its maturity, the Eastern question. It wasn't a question, it wasn't a matter of perhaps Napoleon ending up in Delhi. It was a case of Napoleon ending up in Constantinople was the point. Mm-hmm. And so it, right at the beginning, it's, it's, it's this battle for, you know, for leverage over the Ottoman Empire. Uh, uh, which again provides a thread through the story, and um, it's not totally to, to, to gainsay to the, the importance of, of of India in, in some wider systemic system, and, and that the Mediterranean did have a relationship to that. But I think these um, other aspects, which are continental and quasi-continental, which is something we might come back to, I imagine, in our discussion. In other words, in relation to Europe, in a very broad sense, 
uh, not Asia, w- which I think is, is absolutely vital. How did Britain approach this area when they started getting involved, as you say, towards the uh, um, during during the the time when they really wanted to keep it, keep Napoleon in check? Uh, there are three places that, that that keep coming back throughout the text. We've already mentioned Malta. There's always there's also Gibraltar and the Cyprus. Um, how did how did the Mediterranean um, present itself uh, to Britain when it started getting involved? It- it, right at the end of the 18th century and the early, very early 1800s, nobody would have predicted, uh, very few would have predicted, some um, advocated, but uh, they were in a minority, uh, some kind of British mastery in the Mediterranean. That would not really have been easily forecast. I mean, British trade in the Mediterranean at the end of the 19th, uh, 18th century was, if anything, on on the retreat. So... Uh, in the, the period of the Napoleonic Wars, it was more a case of providing some kind of block to Napoleon, some kind of block to the French, rather than anything particularly constructive. So there wasn't any vision, really, of what British power in the Mediterranean might might be. It was really a spoiling and a blocking exercise at that point. But I think by the time you get to the 1820s and 1830s, Certainly by the time you get to the 1840s, you have a consolidation of the British presence in the Mediterranean, which again is where Malta um, began to play a central role in being one, one of the key conduits through which that consolidation took place, as also was the Ionian Islands at that time. And we may talk a little bit about Absolutely. Corfu, which is an important part of the early bit of the story. And of course, Cyprus came a lot later on, again, in ways we may or may not discuss, but not really until the 18, right at the end, of course, the occupation of Cyprus in 1878. Again, nothing, one wouldn't have predicted that in 1878, in 1877, let alone, <laughs> uh, let alone, let alone earlier. It, that came out of the blue. So it's this period of the, of the immediate post-1815 peace um, in which the British presence in the Mediterranean began to take on not a bird of the the bird of passage aspect which it had before, the transitory aspect. We're here today, but we may probably be gone tomorrow. A sort of feeling that surrounded uh, the British presence before then. Uh, certainly, Castlereagh, for example, at the head of British foreign policy, uh, you know, in the immediate sort of uh, end of the Napoleonic Wars and in the early years of years of peace, didn't want to irritate his European partners by by grabbing bits of the Mediterranean. So it, it, at that point, it's still very tentative, but it's through the 1820s and 30s and the consolidation of the Royal Navy at that time, the kind of early kind of emergence of the, of the Mediterranean fleet as a fleet, that's, which root, that, that's what really began to root this um, British presence in the region in, into place. And what kind of place was the Mediterranean around this time? I mean, how did it look on the map? Well, um, one of the central aspects, of course, is that all these sort of city city states, of course, above all, and, and, and city polities and empires, like like uh, you know, the Venetian Empire, right at the end of the 18th century, had ceased to ceased to exist. Certainly, ceased to have any legitimate power. Um, one of the, uh, in terms of the cartography and the political cartography. One of the important points to make is that even in 1815, 1816, it looked as if the vital power in the Mediterranean was Austria, which is a, a, a state without a without a strong navy. But nevertheless, Castlereagh 
Uh, one reason why he didn't want to take um, the Ionian Islands was because he thought they should really belong to the Habsburgs and belong to Austria. In other words, it was it was Austrian power in Italy, which was, in mm-hmm. Castlereagh's vision, the protection for British interests. Mm-hmm. And so one has to sort of paint Austrian power very much into um, into the Mediterranean picture uh, at that time. And it's the erosion of that over the course of the 1820s and 1830s and into the 40s, certainly by the mid-century, which again was part of the opening up of a vacuum into which the British moved. Mm. And during the 19th century, I mean, certainly the defeat of Napoleon led to a a certain degree of peace, as it did across much of Europe. Uh, What were the main trends and what were the the main dynamics at work during that large period? A period of British peace was Britain getting more involved, as as you you mentioned, places like the Ionian Islands, or was it just thinking, okay, everything's under control? Yes, we'll get involved when necessary, but uh, nothing more than that. Yes, it, it, it was a, it was the case of the British constantly wanting to maintain peace in the region, and and but through the very modalities of attempting to keep the peace, constantly being involved in a, in a, a, a more and more influential and sometimes determining position. So, for example, uh, if you take the Ionian Islands, um, of course, it was the way that the Ionian Islands, which became a British protectorate in 1817, then became very much involved uh, in the Greek Revolution. And it was the British role during the revolution in Greece, initially rather circumspect about these dangerous rebels, but increasingly becoming a kind of patron for them, which was one way in which the British constantly became involved. Similarly, if you look at, if you look at the, 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 the Italian story, it was increasingly the way in which the British sought to keep the peace between, or keep some kind of stability, some kind of equilibrium between the Bourbon regimes and their opponents, which brought the, region, brought the British, sucked the British into a kind of central position. And, of course, in the end, in 1859, 1860, in the end, they came out on the side of a united Italy. It took them quite a long time to do so. If you look at the uh, situation, of course, in Egypt, it was the, it was the fragmentation, it was the, the, um, the erosion of stability within Egypt all the way through until the 1880s, which brought the British into, the, into a position where finally they had to take decisive action themselves. So it wasn't. It was a very mud, it was a very disparate process. The dynamics were fragmented. There's not one single thrust of them, if you like. But through this period from the 1820s right the way through to the 1860s and 70s, the British are being brought into the central part of the picture. Can we concentrate just for a second on the uh, on the situation in Greece? Yes, uh, because this is somewhere that. Uh, Especially when you bring in figures like Byron, you have mm. a, an enormous, enormous emotional component from mm. Britain, and and this whole philhellenic uh, romanticism uh, was that something that was being imposed from outside, or does, did that actually tally with any of the uh, with any of the sentiments on the ground among the Greeks themselves? Well, it didn't it didn't tally with with, with, with a, a great many sentiments with Greeks on the ground. In the end, it, it tallied with their necessities. Um, so it, the, you do have these Western Greeks, by which I don't mean in the West of Greece, but Westernized Greeks, these Phanoriot classes, as they were called, who were foreign-educated 
um, strong consciousness of, of foreign attachments, and they certainly looked to Britain for support. But it was more the case that by 1826, 1827, the Greek Revolution is on the, on the ropes. I mean, you know, the, the, the um, armies of Ibrahim Pasha, uh, the, the, the son of Mehmet Ali, uh, crashing into Greece, uh, um, even ideas of transplanting, transplanting settlers from North Africa, Muslim settlers, to hold down the Christian rebels by the, by the, uh, and of the, the fall of the Acropolis in 1827. At that time, the Greeks... Uh, insurgents desperately needed a patron. They had to be saved by somebody. Um, they didn't. They they didn't necessarily like being saved because they might become dependent on their saviour. But nevertheless, mm. they had to be saved, and they had to be saved by somebody with a navy. And well, where who's that going to be? So this is the roots of the kind of Anglo-Hellenic tie of that kind of ang that kind of. Uh, uh, you know, Anglo not Anglo-mania is uh, not altogether quite the right word, but this. British attachment that began to run so powerfully in Greek politics came out of the necessities, the imperatives of the revolution itself. Mm. Uh, and and, and, and that's, that, that is embedded in the um, early days of the, of, of the Greek state, even though the king, the first king of Greece, was, of course, a German, King Otto, um, after 1832, but dependent on British support. I had a, a chat with Simon Winder in the in the podcast that we did about Germania, about uh, how all of the German uh, royal families of various different hues ended up all over the place. So it doesn't surprise no, me. Either. No. Um, can we jump to uh, to the other end of the Mediterranean? Because uh, if I would bet that in that TV series that you're talking about with Jeremy Paxman talking about the British Empire, that mm. if he does talk mm, about right. the Mediterranean, what he will do is bring it up to date and say, well, there are some places that we could almost imagine to be outposts of the empire in the 21st century. And first and foremost among those, maybe not at the minute in the news because that would be the Falklands, would be Gibraltar. Mm. Uh, I know that this, the Gibraltar story started off before all of this, um, before this book comes in at 1800, but can you, can you fill in a few details about exactly what the British situation and the, you know, the relationship with Gibraltar was and where, how it came about? Gibraltar was initially occupied and, of course, confirmed by 1714 in the Treaty of Utrecht. The dramatic event in the 18th century is, of course, the, the, the great siege, uh, the Spanish siege of Gibraltar in the 1780s, resisted by the British. But the, the key thing to say, really, is that the British were always ambivalent about Gibraltar. Uh, George III, for example, was all for giving it away. Yes. He, what was the word that uh, I remember this from the text? Uh, he found it irritating. Certainly, he found he certainly he found it irritating, and uh, that recurs throughout the story, even uh, even up until the present present day. So Gibraltar is terribly complicated because, on the one hand, uh, that's why you're right, no doubt, about predicting about the <laughs> Jeremy Paxman's program. Um, it became embedded in a, a kind of British imperial ethic an image of British power. And so this, the, um, the, the kind of phrases about, about you know, a, a solid as a rock, 
There's even an Ella Fitzgerald lyric about, you know, about, about the rock and uh, um, using the imagery of, uh, of the rock. So it did, it became embedded in, 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 in British um, folk memory. And indeed, even in 1918 at the Paris Peace Conference, when somebody, inevitably the question of handing it to Walter back did, did, did crop up at that conference, and Curzon said, absolutely no way. I mean, the one place you can't hand back to anybody is Gibraltar. So it had that. It had, had that folkloric quality. On the other hand, um, the British sort of um, policy-making circles, if you like, in the foreign policy sense, naturally enough because of the um, irritation vis-à-vis Spain, there's always been a kind of underlying critique about the rock, always been an underlying critique about the people who lived there. Uh, they're not really British, are they? Uh, well, they just pretend to be British, don't they? Uh, they're really a uh, well. They're re- they're really a well a real mishmash, aren't they? Um, and so that this is a um, uh, and is it really is it really important anyway? Isn't it true that if Spain wanted to grab it tomorrow morning, they could? I mean, this is true all the way through the nineteenth century. So Gibraltar's court always has been caught in in that particular in that partic- in that particular. And ambivalent position, and of course, it was widely discussed at the time of the tercentenary in, 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 in you know in two thousand in two thousand two thousand and four. Absolutely, but it uh, it's it, it's now considered more British than Britain in some ways, and certainly the identity of it as being such a uh, such a British outpost. Uh, when you were talking about the Second World War, for instance, uh, everyone from all of the civilians from Gibraltar were, were shipped first to yes. North Africa and then yes. to, to Morocco and then somewhere else after that. Canada was it? Uh, um, the, the, they ended up they ended up partly in Madeira, Madeira Port- yes. Portuguese Madeira, yes. and, and partly in Jamaica yes. and partly in Earl's Court. Okay, <laughs> nice mixture. Yeah. Um, and uh, I remember that, that when you were writing about that, you said that this experience played a large part in in kind of confirming the Britishness of the people that lived there. Even though many of them, for instance, in the years leading up to the Second World War, many of them had had, had, had Spanish parts of their family. There, there was a lot of mixed of course, blood. Absolutely so. Always, uh, uh, you know, and there's a kind of uh, you know an Anglo-Spanish patois, mm-hmm. um, and. So Gibraltar had always existed in a kind of uh, you know, dynamic interaction between society on the rock on the one hand and the, the, the adjoining campo on the other. That's what's been so unreal, it, it was so unreal once the frontier was closed in the later 1960s. It cut, it cut that off and it had been progressively cut off anyway be, 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 before then. And so by its very nature, it's a kind of hybrid Mm-hmm. hybrid in so many ways and so the evolution of something that you could pin down as being authentically Gibraltarian is very difficult and in terms of local history of course the uh, as Gibraltar as Gibraltarians have needed to equip themselves with a kind of ideology and a kind of myth of history because we all need our myths of history of course they have had to sort of seek for ways of defining what it is to be Gibraltarian, mm-hmm. other than simply not being Spanish, which is, of course, the most important thing, um, and a kind of um, theory, a evocation of how that came about. And so certainly this wartime experience, this experience of, of finding 
that you're, you didn't have any control over your own affairs because the civilian population was just sort of shipped out, you know, mm-hmm. if not overnight, and certainly very quickly, at military behest. And also the, the, the social experience of the women and children, uh, the families, in, as I say, in Jamaica and Madeira and Earl's Court, that had become a kind of building block of, 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 of the writing of Gibraltarian, indigenous British Gibraltarian history. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, can we perhaps not necessarily stick uh, stick with the Second World War, but bring it up to date into the 20th century? And obviously, by this point, the world's a very different place. And uh, the Mediterranean, certainly when it comes comes to British naval history, played a, a large role in both world wars. First of all, uh, everyone knows of Gallipoli in mm. the First World War. In the Second World War, obviously, uh, it, it was the British preferred uh, area of operations, obviously restricted in so many other ways apart from perhaps bomber command uh, and the war in the Atlantic. But but the, the Mediterranean was central in both, maybe not in itself, but certainly as as something that, that, that could be developed, uh, uh, an area of opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, there are different, of course, um, in the Dardanelles in 1915, Gallipoli, and all that is, is obviously very important. Uh, in a way, the Mediterranean itself didn't become... Begin to be central to um, a British war thinking until 1916, particularly 1917, 18, and this, of course, is where Lloyd George and and and, and the Palestine campaign mm-hmm. comes in comes into play. Largely because for, for Lloyd George, it was a way of finessing uh, the um, away from the centrality on the Western Front and, and finding some place, some place where the British could actually fight and win mm-hmm. uh, and produce some prizes, which you could show to the British public as having been worth the shocking efforts uh, of the war itself, and, and that was found in the in the Eastern Mediterranean. And that's where, in many ways, the link is with the Second World War, because that was... Churchill learned that lesson, uh, not least because he, after all, was the architect mm-hmm. of the... Of the of, of the defeat of in, in, in Gallipoli. And he, one of his essential ideas, once he became Prime Minister in, in, in May 1940, June 1940, is his sense, his feeling that the British are not going to do the same thing again as they had done in the First World War. They're not going to bleed themselves in mm-hmm. Europe, in the, in the, on the continent of Europe. They need to find the kind of war which they will get used to, to use his own phrase. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and by that, I think he meant a war which the British could fight within their own limitations and possibilities and capacities, and also a war where they could take decisions for themselves and not be imposed upon and have decisions imposed on them by others. Mm-hmm. And had Britain fought a continental type war, <laughs> had it been possible to do so, had they chosen to do so, uh, well. Um, who would have? Who would have? Who? What? What say would the British have had over that war? Nothing, of course. The Soviets, the Americans, uh, would have dictated that, and mm-hmm. he knew it. That's why he was so reluctant to get sucked back into Europe in the run-up to D-Day, which is an issue that goes beyond their own discussion of my book, since it's not specifically about the Mediterranean. But that's why I think the Mediterranean was so central to him, and why he so frustrated his advisers when he was so determined to. Um, um, yeah, maintain a commitment to Greece, for example, which seemed to many not to have much to do with defeating Hitler. But 
in Churchill's mind, it had a great deal to do with maintaining some kind of British role in the world that was distinctively British. And, in and, terms the, and the Mediterranean was the, the place where you could do that. Absolutely. And in terms of British interests, the Mediterranean was not a sideshow. And that fits in with the whole narrative of your, of your, of your book. Britain had very, very definite interests all, all throughout the Mediterranean, from Gibraltar to the Middle East to Egypt to Suez, etc., Yes, yeah, so it, so it, 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 the Americans, you see, by the end of the Second World War, saw the Mediterranean as being, uh, particularly the bits of the Mediterranean the British were concerned about, as being peripheral. Why, why are they drifting off in this curious way, they thought? Mm. Well, of course, what was peripheral to some people was central to, <laughs> central mm-hmm. to Churchill. And it's that, it's that, so yes, it's that tension between uh, different perceptions as to what is central and what is peripheral. Mm-hmm. And different actors have different points of equilibrium and different points of gravity. And the British gravity was 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 not least in, not only in, of course, but was very significantly in the Mediterranean. And that 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 so it's that which breaks apart in in the post nineteen forty five world. I was going to ask where we were left in nineteen forty five because, of course, the. The grand confrontation of the Cold War was geographically a little bit more distant, although, it, of course, it did impinge upon the Mediterranean. Uh, but there were other big questions uh, that the British presence in the Mediterranean directly led into. And, for instance, we've got Palestine. Yes. Can you uh, sort of shine any light on, on where we were left after 1945 well, I mean, the with some of these point, big questions? Yes. Um, even in 1945, 1946, uh, it, it was by no means clear, for example, that the Americans were going to play any role in, in, in the region at all. Mm-hmm. And what seemed possibly to be emerging potentially was a kind of rather old-fashioned Anglo-Russian struggle about the Mediterranean. Mm-hmm. And well, as it turns out, of course, that was shut down and became subsumed in Cold War um, formation in terms of international politics, whereby the Americans were drawn in themselves in a big way. And in Greece, for example, of course, after 1947, although the British didn't disappear from Greece, it should be said, until 1950 in terms of a military presence, it's the Americans who who take over. But nevertheless, uh, I'm always rather curious the way... People tell the story of post-1945 international diplomacy, not least in this region and not least in relation to the British, uh, in in kind of um, solely Cold War terms. Because, no, within the the Cold War, there were other wars, (laughs) Mm -hmm. other motivations, other perceptions. And that uh, was very much the case if we then were to go on, for example, and discuss a very specific issue of Cyprus in the 1950s because the British came to uh, argue their case over Cyprus very much in terms of its necessity for Cold War purposes uh, in terms of East against West. The real reasons the British wanted to keep Cyprus was, was, was more because of their own rather old-fashioned stake in the Eastern Mediterranean, which didn't necessarily have anything to do with the Cold War whatsoever, which is one reason why the Americans <laughs> didn't didn't approve of British actions and were very leery of them. So it's very, diff- it's very complicated, sort of unravelling and disentangling 
you know, where this Cold War kind of ethic, if you like, or Cold War theme relates to other rather more long-standing fractures and 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 uh, ambitions and motivations that continue. They didn't simply end. They they continued and wrapped up within this wider East-West struggle. And so that's very much true, of course, in 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 many bit places within particularly the Eastern Mediterranean. Let's stick with Cyprus for a second, mm. because it is a, a fascinating place, and, and certainly working in a European foreign policy think tank, <laughs> Cyprus Cyprus does play a, a quite an influential role, far out of uh, proportion to it to its uh, size within the EU, let, mm. let's just say. Um, but uh, of the three places that I mentioned at the beginning, mm. uh, you have Gibraltar, you have Malta, and you have Cyprus, and, and uh, you know, l- perfect spacing in a, almost a straight line across the Mediterranean. The, the other two had much more of a, a British identity by the end of it, whereas Cyprus, Cyprus has had quite a peculiar identity, and that's even before, obviously, we, we get into questions about the Turkish invasion of the north. Yes. But, but uh, Cyprus has got a, a, a bit more of an ambivalent relationship with Britain. Absolutely so. And, of course, it wasn't Britain occupied Cyprus in 1878, and um, in, in, in at that precise context, of course, it was very important because it it, as it were, gave a pivot to British power in the eastern Mediterranean. Gibraltar had done that early on in the west, and Malta, of course, relatively early on in the centre of the Mediterranean. Cyprus did that in the east from 1878. And part of the conception, I mean, the Israeli called it the, the, you know, the, uh, the keystone to Asia. And this, but this idea of having age brought it in the east, which was another phrase of the time, age brought it in the mm-hmm. east. But behind the ambivalence you point to is the fact that it never really became that. In fact, the, the, the strategic significance of Cyprus for British for Britain was very early on after the occupation uh, reduced because in 1882 the British seized Alexandria and Egypt. Well, if you have Egypt, why, why do you need to have? Why do you need to have Cyprus? It didn't become a crown colony until eighteen twenty uh, until nineteen twenty five. Um, it becomes a protectorate and uh, Turkish sovereignty because Turkish sovereignty continued after eighteen seventy eight. That's liquidated in nineteen fourteen because Britain's at war with Turkey. They had to they had to uh, end Turkish sovereignty, but it doesn't become a crown colony until nineteen twenty five. So when you think about it, between that and independence for Cyprus in 1960 ain't very long at all. So it, even constitutionally, it was always in something of a limbo. And of course, unlike most colonies, it had within it a majority, a Greek majority, with an intense sense of their own cultural identity. Um, an, in, an, an intense idea of their own loyalties to another patron, which wasn't the British. Mm-hmm. And this was expressed in so many different ways. I mean, for example, as British officials at the time often complained in the 1920s and 30s, if you looked at maps in Greek Cypriot schools, the, the island wasn't coloured red to belong to the British Empire, though, of course, in theory it did. It was coloured blue and uh, uh, white to signify it belonged to Greece in the most fundamental cultural and emotional sense. Mm-hmm. And so... So, yes, of course, that has played out through the Cypriot story in a very profound way. And yet, um, and this is where it gets, any, where it gets um, more complicated than ever, nevertheless, there is a British residue, there is a British legacy, there is a kind of Britishness which 
has worked off on the Cypriots, even though sometimes some like to admit that or are happy to admit that, some aren't. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, when some of my Greek Cypriot friends go to Greece, and I'm not talking about in the recent troubles, but, I mean, over the, you know, uh, over the past 20 years, they can come back and they complain about the trains not running on time and the trade unions and it's not like this, it's not like this in Britain or Cyprus, is it? I mean, there is this... <laughs> so the, 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 the Greek Cypriot relationship with Greece is an incredibly complicated subject. Mm-hmm. And that's, a, that's the other side of, of the story. And five of the six, I think it's true to say, post-independence presidents of, of Cyprus have been London-trained lawyers. Mm. So there is a very complicated story there, um, um, full of contradictions, basically. Let's uh, talk about two things uh, as we get towards the end of this. And one of them is the British legacy in mm. the region. And also, I suppose, a question that, that, that's begged by how we started off when we talked about how the, how the British presence, in a sense, unified this into something of, something of a region, as opposed yes. to just a collection of things dotted around a, a, a spot of water. Um, Britain's legacy, and uh, is it still... Can we still talk about the Mediterranean as a as a coherent region by itself? I don't. I, I I suspect you. I suspect you can't. You can't do that. And the current eurozone, the way the current crisis has evolved, in some profound sense, speaks strongly to that, doesn't it? This goes beyond, of course, the, the British side of the. Of the of, of the story as we've been discussing it, but Spaniards are so very keen to say that they're not like the Greeks, mm-hmm. and, and 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 the Italians say the same thing. I well, mean, they talk about Club Med. There's very a Club Med, but Club Med is a kind of French conception. I don't, I don't think the I don't think the I don't think certainly the, the Greeks don't talk about Club Med. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that if anybody has tried to sustain. A kind of pan med idea. Now that the British have gave up, gave up the gave up the ghost on that, mm-hmm. it's surely French presidents and French presidents. Well, certainly all through my lifetime, from De Gaulle, I suppose, certainly from Pompidou onwards, have always been the ones to float ideas about Mediterranean solidarities, Mediterranean programs. Of course, increasingly within the EU setting, and not just in the, on the North Shore, but the, and not the, just the on South. the North Shore, but also on the South Shores. So it's the French who have tried to do that, but of course, it's never with any kind of success or coherence. And of course, that's been blown apart by the, um, uh, many ways, by the crisis itself. Um, let me also go back and answer your question to another one of my own um, uh, kind of you know pet. Um, theories, which is the way that the ideas of the Middle East, this centrality in foreign policy debate about the Middle East, which has fractured our idea of the Mediterranean as a coherent entity, so that it becomes simply some kind of appendage to the Middle East. And uh, when you think about it, the Middle East was only was itself invented by... At least the Mediterranean is a real physical <laughs> structure, as it were... Uh, the Middle East isn't, is it? I mean, the British invented the term Middle East, not even a 19th century term. They invented the thing in 1914, and, and, and it's, it's, it's had legs because the Americans came along and took over the term. So we have Middle Eastern foreign, we have a Middle Eastern policy here, and we have a Middle Eastern policy there. Does the Middle East exist? Or what, what, what are we talking about? 
Mm. I very much doubt whether even the term will exist for another hundred years. It'll, it'll, it'll lose its coherence. In fact, the Americans, of course, as we all know, we're being told by Obama, are withdrawing in some sense, withdrawing to the Pacific and their state. Mm-hmm. With, as they as they as they as they play down their um, their Middle Eastern presence. Uh, as we now call it, I think the very terminology is going to change. Mm. And I do think you see, this is, I think, interesting to our discussion, you see a a um, reinvention of this old idea of the Levant. We're seeing it at the moment. For example, over Cyprus natural gas, this whole... In, re- in recent months, you've had Russian warships and French warships and, and, and Turkish warships mm-hmm. uh, buzzing around these in this area around the Cyprus coast with its natural gas possibilities. It's just been being confirmed now. But this has, to me, has a feeling of an old 19th century Levantine Eastern Mediterranean naval crisis, mm-hmm. which is going to become, I think, much more intense over the next two to three years with very real dangers involved. But I don't think that's a Middle East crisis. It's a distinctively Eastern Mediterranean crisis of a type we haven't seen for a long time. Of course, if there's a strike on Iran by Israel, these things will get mixed up again for a while. But I do think that the Mediterranean is regathering some kind of foreign policy centrality of its own, rather distinct from the Middle East. Um, and so we may get, a, as I say, we may get, we, we, we may we we may get that tendency strengthening um, over the next few years. But certainly, ever since the 1960s, when for sure British naval power in the Mediterranean ceased to have any real coherence, I think the, the whole region has been in a curious, curious sort of, you know, no man's land with no real. In- integrity of its own and when I follow the, the Eurozone crisis at the moment one of the sadnesses to me is the lack of solidarity in the south between the south mm-hmm. and, 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 and that's a rather sad comment it seems to me on, on the wider question of solidarities within and identity and identities within the Eurozone mm-hmm. Can we just finish just with a very simple question um, this is a fantastic book. Thoroughly enjoyed reading it. I, more than that, I thoroughly enjoyed uh, learning about something I really didn't uh, hadn't hadn't actually given much thought to before. Uh, what are you working on now? Are you working on anything that that, that moves this whole question forward? Or well, I mean, um, one always has all kinds of books at the end of writing one book, and although there is also the question as you get older, does one have the energy to write <laughs> another another book once you get over sixty? I hope so. But. Um, when I set out to write this book, I intended to do... I also wanted to have a strong cultural element in it, um, not a principally political and strategic and, and, and naval and, and story. Of course, it's such a huge panorama that covered in this book, and the fact of the matter is it is mainly strategic and political cultures there to some extent, and poets are there and painters are there. But I would quite like to do a... Uh, the the other book, which in a way I set out to write and didn't, but still remains to be written, <laughs> which is a kind of more cultural underpinnings, uh, including literary underpinnings, and what the Mediterranean meant to British society. That too is in the book, in this book, but I think there's a great deal there to be to to be explored more fully without having to be drawn to telling the stories about wars and and and, and revolutions, which of course I do do in this book. 
and uh, so maybe a maybe maybe a book about the meaning of the Mediterranean in, in British life in 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 a rather more in a in a in a rather more um, as I say a rather more cultural and aesthetic um, manner would be all, a, a nice book to write all the way through to mass tourism. All, yes, all, all the way through to, to from Byron to from from, By, from Byron to, and of course Byron was a tourist. I mean, if Byron if Byron you know had lived in the nineteen, he would have been a beach bum. I think somebody has, a bit of a has made that remark about it. And so, yes, from Byron to mass tourism would be one way of approaching it. Well, if you do write that book, we'll get you back here. OK, I'd like to do that. Thank you very much. Thanks very much. And that was Robert Holland, the author of Blue Water Empire, a fascinating insight into history that resonates so strongly today. This is Nicholas Walton from New Books and European Studies, wishing you a good day from here in London. Mm-hmm.